Hello everyone, happy weekend. I hope you guys are having a wonderful Saturday. Once again, we're back with a new episode of Trust Talks. Trust Talks is brought to you by Renergetics Consulting, where we transform people, transform business. If you'd like to know more about us, log on to www.renergetics.com. I'm your host, Aishwarya Subramanian, and I'd like to welcome you to episode four of Trust Talks. Trust Talks is a series focused on trust, where the intent of the show is to highlight the importance and impact of trust in leaders, teams, organizations, and community. First off, thank you so much for the overwhelming response we have received on LinkedIn and Facebook. And like you, I am too excited for today's episode. In our episode today, we will be exploring the neuroscience of trust. What is all of this about? Why does it matter? Joining me today, we have our co-founders, Jessica Sargent. Jessica Sargent is the co-founder of Renergetics Consulting, partners with Rena, a trust-building consultancy, the founding member of the John Maxwell team, an OD consultant, professional speaker, psychotherapist, and an EIT consultant, and she's also a RENA certified master trust building practitioner. Hi, Jessica. Welcome to Trust Talks. Thank you, Aishu. So we also have um, Subramanian Narayan. Subramanian Narayan is the co-founder of Renergetics Consulting, partners with RENA, a trust building consultancy, He's also the founding member of the John Maxwell team, an OD consultant, professional speaker, and an executive coach. He's also a RENA certified master trust building practitioner. Hi, Subramanian. Hi, Jessica. Hi. Hi. It's pretty exciting to see so many people watching us live, and we are equally excited to bring our special guest for today. Absolutely, Subramanian. I am so um, excited about today's guest who's going to be joining us. And in our episode today, we have Antino Sola John. Antino is a disruptive entrepreneur. He's the co-founder of Excellence Installation Technology, which is one of the most cutting-edge technologies to design and fast-track personal evolution and excellence. He's worked with legends like A.R. Rahman, athletes, investors, entrepreneurs, top executives from the Fortune 500. He's been featured on Forbes, BBC London, and NDTV. And he's also been a recipient of the Award of Honor by the Ministry of Social Justice and Empowerment by the Government of India. Hi, Antonio. Welcome to Trust Talks. Hi, Ashuria and uh, all of you online. Happy to see you. We're happy to have you as well, Antonio. I'm, I'm so much, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to today's discussion. So without much further ado, I'll hand over to Subramanian and Jessica to get started. Thank you, Aisha. So, Antno, welcome to our show once more. In fact, it's such a delight uh, having you on Trust Talks. When I think trust, the, uh, it's like the epitome of trust. Somebody who can, who is like rock solid in that space. It's Antno Solar John that comes to mind. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thank you, Jessica. And and, and it's not just for me. I, it's for so many people out there whom you have helped evolve their trajectory and create their own legacies. And uh, both Subramanian and I too are a testimony to your phenomenal work. Um, so very grateful to you, Antono, and very happy to have you on the show today. Thank you. Thank you, Jessica. So let's... Uh, the first question for you, Antono, the work that you're doing in the space of, um, you are the co-founder, the creator of uh, what we call excellence installation technology. And we know this is something so powerful because we have experienced it. But I would like to hear a little about it from the horse's mouth because the audience would be curious to know what is it that you do and what is EIT. So please do share a little about the work that you do and also, while you were developing EIT, you know, uh, how trust came along with that and some thoughts on that. Sure. So thank you, Jessica. And I, 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 I want to thank Aishwarya for the fabulous introduction, too. I feel like uh, no one has done my I haven't done a profile like that about myself, like you guys have put together. Um, <laughs> and thank you, Subramanian. Um, so the, I remember when I was, um, I think, about eight eight years, you know, young as a boy, my father um, was having dinner with me, and I playfully asked him. It was Christmas time, and one of these cereal lights weren't glowing, and I playfully asked him, you know, why do they suddenly glow and suddenly not glow? Like, and then and then I also see that you know, someone comes home and they do something, and then they fix something, they change one bulb, and then the entire set starts to glow again. I'm like, I mean, this is back in those days when you didn't have LED. So, you know, bulbs are like 20 years ago, bulbs are like prone to get fused. And I, it, it was amazing to me how someone could change one bulb and then the entire serial lights would, would, would glow. And when I asked my father curiously, you know, what's going on? Why do they sometimes glow? Why do they not? And he explained to me why they're called serial lights. And he, I remember the first engineering drawing that my father, you know, for me, from, from my perspective, the first engineering drawing that I was introduced to was this piece of paper we, where, he, where he introduced electronic circuits and the importance of, you know, connectedness and how things happen when that flow happens. And to me, that moment was the beginning of my you know, engineering education. Uh, two years from then, I was a programmer uh, in school, just doing things that people were marveling about. By by the time I was in my ninth grade, not yet finished my high school, um, I was already, you know, working for ID companies and um, uh, got into hacking and uh, ethical hacking, obviously, but and a lot of various stuff. By the time I was done with college, I was consulting companies and I had written... Um, you know, uh, about 15 years ago, I published a book with Pact Publication. While, uh, and this is it, 15 years ago, the worldscape was slightly different. It's not like today where everybody gets to publish. Back then, you know, a publisher who's like a top rank in the world coming and finding you and asking you to write a book was a big thing. Now, when I look back, it's very easy for me to connect the dots that, you know, I grew in my career because I had a solid foundation in engineering. 
I mean, in my early days in my career, like a tech officer, like I was a CTO. But I, if I connect the dots backward, it's very easy to see that I had a solid foundation in engineering and that helped me in my career. And if I connect it backward all the way to the beginning, I can trace it to that moment in the dinner table with my father, um, you know, where he's explaining circuitry to me. In fact, I can trace it a little earlier to that too, the encouragement from my mother to open up sets and just play with them and so on. And you heard Steve Jobs say this too, right? Like, you know, when life happens and his life, the series of events happen, and when you look back, you can actually connect the dots. But what about looking forward? What about predicting what the dots could be? And we call it as predictive intelligence. Now, in computer science, predictive intelligence is a very specific thing. You use a platform like Facebook, it can predict what is your behavior going to be for a short time, you know, the next minute. But when it comes to personal evolution and evolving and who you would become 10 years from now, you're talking about predictive intelligence for a decade. And EIT is the only model that I know that is attempting to work on how do you scientifically, methodically improve predictive intelligence so that out of the millions of plethora of opportunities a person has to improve, today you can improve on any area of your life. If you put time in it, you have enough resources online, you can find great mentors. But how do you decide of the million opportunities available? Which are the set of things that's going to evolve you in a particular direction across years, across decades? That's excellence installation technology. It's the science of predicting you know, how a person can evolve. And we are all in the business of evolving, uh, Jessica, because I think from the time we are born, our parents are thinking of the best school for us, not because of you know, the degree that you're going to have 20 years later, but they're predicting if you are in a particular ecosystem, if you have a particular type of friends, then you would evolve in a particular way. And as we grow older, you know, sometimes it becomes our responsibility to evolve, you know, our parents and people around us because you want them still connected in the present world and interacting and not get into loneliness. Um, people evolve their spouses, you know. Sometimes people think of how can I have a better marriage? How can I have, how can my husband do better in, in life? And they structure opportunities and conversations that can lead a person in a particular direction. So as humans, this is a very innate thing. To be able to evolve ourselves and evolve others is like, a very innate thing, just as basic and fundamental as uh, eating, uh, drinking, and sleeping. And uh, excellence installation technology is an attempt from us to bring a structured, predictable way to do this, uh, based on validated life experience. And what I mean by that is not by theory, but by actually making it happen, tracking the progress and the trajectory shifts over years, and then looking at that comparison and using actual data to create models that would work for um, different different sectors. Your second question uh, to me was, uh, how, how do you connect to trust in all of these things? Uh, I, and I, I personally believe that, you know, if you go back to a time in your life when you learned to walk, when you learned to write, your parents guided you in, you know, how to hold a pencil. And, you know, how to make those uh, shapes. And at that time when you were writing those alphabets, when you were learning those alphabets, you had no clue that 
doing this is going to become a foundation for your communication in the future. And a lot of things that we did as children that has become a foundation for us today to the things we do happen because we trusted, allowed people around us, allowed trustable people around us to help us and lead us. Even though you couldn't see 10 years ahead, you couldn't know that writing these alphabets meant that, you know, that communication you could send out in Facebook today would happen without an effort. So I think that's 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 the connection between evolving and trust, because, you know, a lot of people think that I don't want to be influenced. You know, I want to just use my own mind. And I'm thankful that I have never thought that way. I have allowed myself to be influenced, uh, but hopefully and thankfully by people who I think are trustworthy. And a lot of things that I know today, have learned today and can do today would have never happened if I did not allow trustable people to influence me. So I think trust plays a very important role in um, both evolving and uh, and in, in becoming a person who can evolve others, as well as allowing others to influence the way you evolve. That's 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 really interesting, Antonov. And and uh, I I know because uh, for the benefit of the audience. Uh, Antono is also a mentor for all of us, including Renegetics, and it has always been a pleasure to deal with Antono. And I have known him for over five years now, or even seven years. And uh, all the interactions that I've, I have had, and both Jesse and I have all had in the five, seven years, has always been something where we have built a relationship which definitely, like Jessica said, is built on trust. And to know, it's, it's interesting when you use the word predictive intelligence. And, and from a tech language or from an AI language, it makes sense that you look at all data points that you have. In this case, we're discussing an individual. So you look at all the data points that the person has based on the, the various tools and techniques that EIT leverages and then predicts the trajectory way forward. Now, you also mentioned that trust is literally connected to that. Now, from an audience perspective, and for those who are part of the Antono Harini ecosystem, I think they all understand. But for those who are not in the ANH ecosystem, and for those who are listening to this EIT technology and the personal transformation and the predictive technology, predictive intelligence that it brings along, uh, what would you want to add for those people to say how 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 do you or how does EIT equip people to to get into this predictive intelligence space? <laughs> okay, that's a. Uh, I'm glad you asked, uh, Subramanian. So uh, one is to be able to have predictive intelligence while you're helping people. The other is how do you develop and uh, enable predictive intelligence for yourself. Um, I'm going to start with my own personal story, and uh, I'm going to uh, also share insights on what I what I think might help people develop predictive intelligence. So I was a chess player, like from a very young age. You know, when I was uh, under eight nationals, I was under uh, I was in the top ten, and I remember the first chess tournament I played. Uh, it was a state tournament, and I came number two there. So I think I had. Um, with, with a very fundamental training in chess, I had some grip of how chess worked. But one of the 
thing that changed my game, the way I look at chess, was something called as the end game. And to, to just quickly help audience who don't know chess, the chess has like three parts, you know, the opening, how do you start a game? The middle game, which is where your tactics and strategy and um, your core strength comes out. And then finally you have the end game where you have very minimal pieces. There's nothing much to, it looks like there's not much to think. And when, when you look at grandmasters in chess in those days, the ones who were outstanding, like say Casablanca, um, you know, were not necessarily people who are good with opening or middle game only. They were extraordinary with end game. And my father uh, introduced me to end game and I loved it. So the thing about the end game is you just have three, four pieces on the chessboard. And you have, to, it looks equal, to an amateur it looks equal, but a grandmaster, while you look at the position, would know how that game is going to conclude. Now, this is the beautiful thing. In chess, at least, you keep playing the end game for a while, you practice it for a while, and then something happens in terms of patterning. The moment you open your first move, you're already predicting what end game position you're leading the game into. So while you're playing the opening, you're playing the opening, the middle game, and the end game. While you're playing the middle game, you're playing the middle game and the end game. And I think that's a very good strategy for life. Uh, often I hear people saying, you know, I just want to do this first and then see what happens. But I think if we can look at what the end game is, instead of looking at what's first, if we can look at what is the end game, and then each move can kind of tailor towards that outcome. So um, the way we do it in EIT is uh, I, I look at an individual and I, I first look at what are the unique strengths, you know, what makes this person unique, amazing at what they do. But I also look at are there elements that when they combine together with what this person has, will, you know, exponentially increase their impact. And uh, you often find that, you know, you find designers who can't create anything. You find creative people, innovators who can't sell. You find salespeople who don't have the right product. Um, sometimes, you know, two people come together and complement. But sometimes a person has like 90% of everything required. But that little arc is not well developed. So when I'm looking at an extraordinary, so the moment I see a person, I'm looking at what's the spark of brilliance in this person. What makes them extraordinary? And then I look at why is the spark of brilliance not shining as much as it could? Where would this person be 10 years from now in this trajectory? So it's like I do a time travel in my head, like in 10 years in the current trajectory where they would be. And then where could they be if the spark of brilliance is actually a shining diamond? And then I look at those two futures. So in my head, I'm comparing two futures. I'm seeing future one, I'm seeing future two. But here's the thing. When I'm looking at future one and future two, my attention is not on their wealth, on what they have created, the impact. My attention is on the person. In future one, who is this individual? In future two, who is this individual? And then you compare that difference and you come up with, these are the things that needs to happen. These are the experiences they need to, needed to have created for themselves. These are the challenges they need to, needed to have solved. And then you work backward towards what personal improvement can you help this person do today 
and neuro linguistic programming kind of gives you the tools to bring personal changes really rapidly like you know someone wants to overcome stammering or wants to speak more eloquently or wants to become more confident in, in front of an audience or wants to not get angry or wants to learn something faster remember something differently then it gives you the tools to in minutes you know help people overcome challenges that would have taken decades so you're looking at the end picture you're comparing two future and the individual in both those futures and then you're working the trajectory backward and you're looking and you're making a list of what adjustments do we have to make in this person today that once done leaves the person to in an autopilot mode you know you don't have to interfere after that you you build this capability you help them develop this habit you change this mindset then they are on an autopilot towards a better destination that's that's uh, that's really exciting jesse and i keep discussing about this because obviously for for the benefit of the audience jessica was the one who brought me closer to antonum so jesse has always innately been um gifted with call it intuition or call it the ability to predict the trajectory and i have kind of followed her along but it's it's been an interesting journey for me and it has always excited me as to the possibilities that it brings and antono uh, you have always been supportive and you have always shown us possibilities that we had not seen including with trust and you have been one of the first ones to say that trust is systemic and trust is disruptive and 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 you have kind of said said that even before we had been able to kind of vision that or see that um i want to pick your brains with that question or point and ask you that question saying when you see, when you see trust and when you say disruptive or it's systemic or at at the core what is your perspective on that what what how do you see trust and also you could connect back to the point that you were making with the chess example and and you were talking about patterning and and so obviously there is an unconscious pattern that you are good at at deciphering that and so where does all fit in in the sense that trust is one component the unconscious pattern is one component and renegetics has always been dealing with the corporate space predominantly with the individual transformation or leader transformation or the organizational transformation so trust disruptive systemic and then you have unconscious pattern and in the space of transformation and and getting to the next level how do you see trust into all this space okay there's a lower question asubramanian i'm going to uh, break it up into smaller chunks and explain and then connect it back all together to answer your question uh, in in its completeness um so uh, i remember about 2 years ago there is an investor who wanted to kind of invest in our company and um, he was a friend as well and uh, we were having this conversation and um, um he was just amazed at all the things that you know we have been doing like you know we work with people who are paralyzed help them get movements we've been working with people to conceive we've been helping co- people from corporates to get like two promotions in in a year's time which otherwise would take like 3 4 years and and then homemakers and then children and then tennis and 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 then in the course of the discussion he just stopped me and he said 
And you know what? I want to be a billionaire. He's talking about himself. Okay. And he said, I want to be a billionaire, which means you must make your business disruptive. I said, okay, I'm listening. Go ahead. And he said, disruptive means that you have a million things that you can do right now. But in order for you to go disruptive, can you do one thing that a million people want? And he gave the analogy. So I was using the analogy of GE and electricity. And he, and he took the analogy, borrowed that analogy back from me and, gave, and described to me again, saying, everybody wants light. So when electricity disrupted the world, they went disrupting the world by bringing light to every home, you know, instead of like a candlelight and then oil and, you know, uh, and other things. Now you have electricity that brings light. So uh, GE might do a million things, but the way electricity became disruptive in the world is, you know, it, the way it took over in such a short time is because everybody wants light. And that's how electricity entered every home. And uh, in that sense, and so, so in that sense, I think you already have one component, which is you're going after trust. It's one thing. And is there, is there a way million people can benefit from improved trust? Absolutely. Right. So I think um, any product that can serve million people has potential to be disruptive as long as it is you're you're able to deliver that product at a cheaper or a more either it's cheaper or it's much more effective than anything the world has seen before so i think until now my understanding is nobody has systemat systematically not systemically but systematically uh modeled or you know you know, kind of uh, put a system in place to understand an invisible force known as trust and how to assess it, how to measure it, and how to, uh, how to improve it. So that already gives you a first mover advantage in the sense that, one, it's a single promise that's serving a million people. Second, you're, you're bringing to the market something that isn't there yet. There is no systematic way to improve, measure, or do trust. So, which which already means that it's a it's a unique space and it's a blue ocean and it has potential to be disruptive. Now, the third thing I think that is really important for something to become disruptive, in my opinion, is the speed of implementation. And the speed of implementation is really necessary because that's where feedback happens. That's where you learn what are the challenges, uh, and you can kind of engineer, or if I have to use a common term instead of engineering, you can design on top of a base solution. So when electricity went into every home, you know, there's a light, but then soon people started connecting motors and people started connecting other things. And yeah, the whole field of electricity in 10 years just completely transformed. The first electricity bulb that went into every houses where, you know, the sockets that were there in the, in the uh, bulb holders is what they used to power washing machines but not five years later, because any product that is disruptive, in my opinion, from the time it hits the market to the time it is actually in everybody's home, it morphs like a hundred times, if not a thousand times. So what you see as, you know, the entry is never what it is when it has become disruptive. And so if it has to iterate and change itself like a thousand times in the process, then, and if you're going to take a year or two for every iteration, 
then you just don't have enough life years to to see through that disruptive thing uh, happening so you got to shorten you got to quicken the process and that's where unconscious patterning comes in so when we learn new habits and to me unconscious patterning if i go back to the example of writing you know when you started learning alphabets you did it consciously you know your parents asked you to do it you held the pencil and you made one alphabet and another alphabet another alphabet you did it consciously and with enough repetition it's become an unconscious pattern right now you want to write you have a unique handwriting which is embedded in your neurology you don't have to think about what your handwriting has to be you just think about what you want to write and then there's a unique style that comes out so that's unconscious pattern so there are things beliefs we form things we repeat again and again mental thoughts that we keep having you know when you wake up in the morning when you go to sleep when you're discussing with a friend the way you listen the way you process that information after enough repetition it becomes a pattern it happens so fast that you don't need to pay conscious attention anymore and the fact that you can't pay don't need to pay conscious attention anymore is a double edged sword one it's an advantage because you don't need to pay attention it's on autopilot your mind is free to do whatever it wants to do but the disadvantage is you don't even know it's happening because you're not paying attention or it's happening at that speed you don't you can't notice it like if you have to go back and you know look at if, i mean i'm pretty sure when you learn to spell letters you knew exactly how many strokes are there in each letters but right now if i were to randomly ask you how many strokes are there in z you wouldn't remember you had to actually go back and you know you need to write z and then after you've done it you have to deconstruct what you did which is very different from the way you learned it which means after a while unconscious patterns become invisible and in in a lot of ways that's like trust you know it's like you know you could all, in gravity is invisible but you could feel its presence so there are invisible forces in our life and the unconscious patterning is uh, is everything that you have done decided to do thought at some point in life which may or may not be relevant today that has become so automatic and so innate and uh, the quickest in my opinion to change habits and behaviors and beliefs is you know if you if you do anything 100 times it changes but can you do it 100 times you know if you, if you can you if someone wants to say you know develop a new behavior can they do it consistently for 100 days maybe maybe not but what if you could you know get the change at the level of the patterning of the unconscious patterning then you don't need to do it 100 times over 100 days you can do it 100 times in like 5 minutes and then what happens is when you go out there the same situation comes your habit and your behaviors and your responses are different so that's unconscious patterning unconscious patterning in my opinion is one of the fastest ways to bring about change so when you combine that with trust it gives you the ability to shorten the cycle so you're able to measure certain things you're able to bring to attention maybe an individual maybe a, a group of people maybe a team maybe an organization you're able to measure you're able to bring about trust issues now all of that boils down to the individuals in that connected ecosystem and they have to change in order for the trust to improve and unconscious patterning in my opinion gives like you know what could take 5 10 years you could actually bring about changes in like a minute uh in in a few minutes in in weeks sometimes in months so i think it allows you to compress the time it requires to get quality feedback 
So I also want to digress a bit here. When I say feedback, I'm not referring to what people say you have done and how well you conducted it. I'm talking about objectively validatable experiences. So the shorter that time frame becomes, the quicker your iterations are between your first go-to-market product and the final go-to-market product. And you'll soon arrive at a point where the product is just a delightful market fit. In a sense, the people who are transforming because of trust are themselves taking it to a lot more a uh, lot more people and uh, that's the point when it becomes disruptive so i think the connection between unconscious uh, patterning trust and uh, disruptive business is that trust is one of the one very important invisible systemic force and uh, uh, we uh, some audience here may want to know what we specifically mean by systemic force is uh, you know um I think when we were a child, we we learned about, you know, how the forest works. Like, you know, you have the frog at the bottom of the food chain and then you have other things that come up. And then the thing that teachers teach us is that if you just magically got all the frogs to disappear, for some people, it might look like a good thing. But the reality may be that the entire food chain might collapse, that the entire forest might collapse. And systemic thinking there is where you understand the importance and the role of many different things that are working together in creating an outcome. Like, you know, sometimes what is the role of the grandparent in the grandchild? You know, what's the role of the grandparent may have may not talk to the grandchild directly, might might have a particular voice when talking to the mother. That what's the impact of that on the grandchild? That's systemic thinking. Systemic thinking is the ability to notice in totality. Um, the different things that are going on. In fact, our team just today coincidentally released, They, I mean, they had a calendar pre-planned like weeks ago and they released a video on IGT, IGTV today and Instagram, Antno Harini, on systemic thinking. And we, um, if you have engaged with us there, you would know that. I'm nice. talking about the exact same thing with different examples on how a small change in one thing can actually create a completely different outcome in something else. And in that perspective, trust is a systemic component, which means you improve trust in an organization and then you suddenly see productivity improve. You suddenly see how people are more close to each other. You see uh, how you love, the love improves. You see how profits improve. Uh, I have to tell you that, you know, a lot of our team who, um, like, we consider ourselves as a research organization first. We believe we barely started uh, getting uh, disruptive products in place. Um, but until now, we have been working with any type of person who comes into the system and solving any type of challenge and uh, it, and have been spending the last seven years just creating excellence installation technology. Now, the challenge between a business and a research organization is also in terms of your if your salaries, right? So if you're a, if you're a business, you tend to be having the power bandwidth to pay more than if you're a research organization. So my salary personally and Hernie's and our team, the core team that is with us, our lifestyle has been the same for the last nine years. 
my lifestyle is just the same as it was when i became the cto of the when i was a cto of an organization i i mean the lifestyle i had when i was 24 is the same lifestyle i carry right now and nothing to complain about it i had a great lifestyle and i said i have a great lifestyle now but but you would you would assume that a company like ours which is growing so big um that our lifestyles would change but all the money goes back into the research we spend we spend millions on on research you know research for us is not just working with a person it's it's a lot more it's a lot more so we spend millions on research and the money keeps going back over there so one of the things is you know we've had like a constant salary for a, for a long time for years together now one of the things that ha- that i'm grateful for is that the team has been with me for a long time you might have seen them you know from the beginning and they're still with us and their their lifestyle seems to be the same everything is the same but they have this trust you know they see this they they have a trust in the vision when we say eit is going to go into every school and every child will have the benefit of installations to do truly what they desire to do the team has the trust they may not see exactly how it's going to happen they may not see exactly who will be making that happen but they know it's happening they believe in that cause and they trust that this is the right direction for them i have to tell you that the first year like one of the team member the first year after this person joined us joined us the next year she got an offer that is six times the salary that she gets from us and that's five years ago right so so people are like like even a recent team member you know got an offer for like about three times the salary and get and and they don't take it up they don't they 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 let go of opportunities where there's much more comfort there's travel around the world there's like higher salaries but they don't take it up because because i feel at the core there is love and there is trust and i would say that without trust the cost of running my business would have easily been six times higher at least three times higher and for half in my opinion half as talented people as the people currently in the team so that's like a huge expense so i personally believe and we've seen this in so many organizations like you go there and you improve trust between co-founders oh my god it's unbelievable you know two people start work together there's like they're like this and then they they start impacting they the business starts to grow but after it hits a particular threshold you know there is more overheads there are more people to join in and they are all managing different things the time of communication comes down and suddenly that the trust begins to you know get weaker and then you see all kinds of things you know so so what you will see on the outside is you will see conflicts you will see less productivity less morale you might see uh, so many other things profits drop but what you won't see is trust because trust is a systemic invisible force it's like gravity and then you improve the trust between the co-founders especially in family businesses you know you you improve the trust and then you you see completely different different things and i personally believe that you know for startups when there are like 20 people everything is good but then when there are 50 people the distance between the founders and the team increases the dna starts to change and then suddenly from a family now you are a company and what is the difference between a family and a company is that in a family you you know trust is taken for granted in a company you have to ensure and it's your responsibility that there is core trust in the culture
And I think most corporates don't pay attention to that because they don't recognize that it's the responsibility of the organization to, to maintain a culture of trust. And without a culture of trust, I think people pay price. You know, they pay heavy prices. And, uh, I, and I think we are, as a, as a country in India, I think a lot of startups are, are learning that the cost of that by paying the price. Um, there's a there's a lot of fantastic startups that have grown, you know, beyond a particular mark, and then they start collapsing. You know, they start the growth becomes slower, and uh, at the core of all of that are systemic challenges. You know, very very deep rooted systemic challenges, and one systemic challenge, and this is the beauty of systems, right? So in any you know in any complex system, in a well interconnected complex system, often you find individual elements. You tweak that and everything else starts to get better. It becomes a driver. So maybe in some you know, organizations, trust isn't the problem, isn't the only problem. Maybe there is a problem with intent. Maybe there's a problem with capability. Maybe there's a problem with communication. But as long as you have a filter called trust and you start noticing people through that filter, then you at least know that when you improve capabilities, you could actually see that translate back into your dashboard of trust and see whether it's actually improving improving trust or not. So I really think that um, without trust um, in families, it's a, it's a very difficult thing. I mean, it's a, in, in, in families, we take trust for granted. Um, but in, in the recent days, you start to notice that Maybe it's not so taken for granted anymore. You know, it, it becomes the responsibility for uh, both parties to ensure that there is trust. Like um, uh, both from parents to children sometimes and children to, uh, to parents. And uh, so trust is an uh, underlying force. You know, it's invisible. But you could trace back a lot of problems to, to trust. Like, you know, there's a lady who, fall, who used to fall sick. And, uh, you know, every time a husband travels. And uh, so uh, obviously what is there on the outside is that you see that the person is falling sick. So they go and they investigate all the medical challenges. You know, they take all the kinds of tests and nothing works out. And then, you know, once the medical thing is ruled out, people start looking at, is there some behavioral psychosomatic thing? Then they start thinking about, is she lonely? Is she missing her husband? Da, 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 da. I mean, those have been cases where, you know, women have missed or husbands have missed their wife and it has sometimes affected their health, um, even in our own clientele that we help change. But for this particular girl, she was just afraid. She had a history of, a, you know, before this marriage, she had a relationship where the guy used to, uh, you know, when he travels, he used to come back with another lover. And uh, and she she had this fear, and that kept that fear dragged, you know, brought itself into the marriage. And every time he travels, there's an unconscious patterning going on, you know, thinking about what if he falls in love with another lady, and you know, what if he lets me uh, leaves me for her, and that trouble would worry her so much that she would fall sick. Now, at the onset, what do you have visibly? What you have is that she's falling sick. And someone has to decode that she's falling sick every time he travels. And then someone has to decode she's falling sick every time he travels when she keeps playing back an unhealthy movie in her head again and again and again. 
So trust is a very difficult thing to track. In EID education, we have ways to track trust. Uh, at least for launch a legacy, when we help people launch a legacy, there are a lot of ways in which we track trust. But I think, uh, Subramanian, I think what I find interesting about uh, the work that you do is that it's an invisible force. So obviously, EID works through predictive intelligence. You know, like we ask what must be true if uh, just like the way we look at the end game and come to the present. Sometimes we see the present as the end game and we are able to look back at what must have happened for all of these things to be true. So the way EID does that is very different. But I think what's interesting about your model is that you have a set of questionnaires and you have a set of exercises that you can get people to do. And you're able to underline and make visible uh, trust issues. And uh, the thing that I'm bringing to it, uh, the attention of audi the audience here is that trust, you know, it's very easy when your husband or wife or a child says, I don't trust you, you know that there is a trust issue. The real trust issues that, you know, pin down organizations and families are uh, when it's unsaid and when the person themselves don't know that the foundation on which their erratic behaviors are based on, even if they recognize it's erratic, is a trust issue. So what I find interesting in the work that you do is that at least for corporates, you have a way in which you can take something that is that was invisible and then you're able to bring it into light with a in a scalable, repeatable, consistent way that you have personally validated is proving accurate. And to me, validation means this, right? That one, you're able to say this is what is causing the problem, and that's a theory. But the moment you can solve that problem based on your theory, it's a validated model. And uh, so there you're solving a problem that is not solved uh, solved for corporates until now. So it is definitely very disruptive. Uh, it's a systemic thing, very disruptive. And I think unconscious patterning is an accelerator. It reduces the time frame you need to deliver results. So you have more models of it to go to the market. Beautiful. And no. Uh, Jesse, feel free to chip yeah, in. I'm, we could, I'm we could keep listening to Antino talk on and on, and it's so engrossing <laughs> and so beautifully it, expressed. It, it, it always is the 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 yeah. way he puts it puts the whole thing into different boxes and makes it as clear, crystal clear, yeah. uh, is always amazing uh, for me, at least. And Jesse, I am kind of. Uh, uh, wanting to ask this question to Antono. And before I ask that, I just want to let the audience know that what you see of Antono here in this session, especially for those who have not directly associated with him, I think you should associate with him because he is, to a large degree, can't be put into boxes or can't, his resume can't be put into pages. And I have a reason for saying that. And I've got a funny thing running in my mind, and I'm going to ask that to Antono. Uh, Antono, I've heard, and and um, I'm sure people around you <laughs> will probably not laugh as much, but I'm going to ask this question. I've heard that you can sniff love, you can sniff fear. And uh, if that is true, I have an added question to that. And audience, yes. Uh, don't laugh at it at, at this point. Wait till he finishes what he is saying. So wh whether you can sniff love and fear and whether you can sniff trust as well. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, that's fantastic, Subramanian. So I just want to rephrase this. Uh, I want to say that everybody can sniff love and fear. Everyone. Uh, and I, I, by, by the way, I said this first before it was officially published. I think I have uh, sources for it. Uh, I've said this in a video. But I think recently, two years ago, there was a, a journal from neuroscience that actually said that, you know, for a long time, we thought dogs have the ability to detect smell that is way superior to humans. And this paper on the neuroscience journal actually mentioned that recently scientists have discovered we have just as much and in some cases a lot more neurocortical pathways and cells that are associated to smell than the dog does wow. so it's like in a neurology we all do but what we also have on top of it is conscious layers uh things to put our attention on which takes uh, away our attention from the core raw capabilities that we are born with. Now, you know, someone who doesn't have the gift of, you know, eyesight can actually make sounds like that. I mean, you've seen it in Batman, but you actually have real human beings who can do that. You know, they can make sounds like that and they can actually tell you the kind of stuff that's there in front of you. People today are doing blind photography. So our neurology is highly evolved is as a, as as a gift as a heritage of being human what your neurology is capable of doing is infinitely complex it's it can do things that are marvelous uh, the more you study supercomputers and artificial intelligence the more you recognize how tiny of a fraction you know a computing power is compared to uh, what the, the human neurology can do. Like uh, I read an article a long time ago about the complexity of designing a plane and, you know, how much goes into it, billions of dollars and thousands of minds and uh, about a million variables when it's taking flight. You know, the temperature, the humidity, a million variables. And that's how complex it is. But the author concluded that every single cell in the body is just as complex or more than an aeroplane. And then we're talking about that complexity interconnected to a billion cells. So what a neurology is gifted with is fantastic. All of us could do this. And uh, for me, uh, but, but I think not everyone has trained that sense, you know, to, to be able to do that. So I think one of the most underutilized, uh, you know, we have uh, five, six actually, you have your visual, you have auditory, you have kinesthetic, the touch, you have your the gustatory, you know, the sense to eat, the olfactory, the smell. And then you have this thing for balance. And, you know, in between your two years, you actually have a, an organ, uh, a sense for uh, um, for measuring balance. So, like, that's why you could close your eyes and walk. So, out of these six, um, you know, senses, the one that is most underutilized, in my opinion, is the olfactory. And I think uh, uh, olfactory is one of the ways in, in which, you know, a lot of times people say, I don't like this person's vibe, I like this person's vibe. And a lot of times the olfactory is an important indicator. You may not consciously recognize it. So the way unconscious patterning work is, it works is that it goes into your system, you make decisions and you make behaviors on top of it without ever knowing that you made those decisions. That's why it's called unconscious patterning. So you might you might feel like someone's vibe is not good or you might love someone's vibe. That's maybe because a hundred different circuitry got fired. You know, what you see, what you hear, what you smell. And they all led to a cortex where decisions were made. What you're aware of consciously is the summation of all of it called the 
the vibe so technically you can smell love um and i think uh, the way i started training myself is i started noticing you know when my mood changes my dog already knows mm. and uh, so being who i am i would try to because you know i would thought maybe it's tracking my micro muscle movements i thought maybe it's tracking the sounds that i'm making sometimes mm, uh, so i kept you know i was I, i i would start experimenting with you know not making any movement and still having a different intent in my mind and then the dog would know so i wrote to john grinder and you know i asked him john is it possible that um, that you know is there another sense this is tracking me with and he said obviously the smell and um, and parallelly there was another interesting thing that was going on which is um um there's a friend of mine when he walks on the street you know the dogs would just follow him like an army <laughs> <laughs> and i was like what is he doing and how does he do that and uh, uh, my intuitive guess was it has to do with his uh, the way he was you, you know changing his state and the smell that associated with it so i modeled him for a while and the same thing started happening you know on demand like you know you could walk and then you suddenly see the dogs following so you could you could in some ways your state what you're thinking can actually change your smell and if you pay attention you can also hear another person's or uh, feel another person's smell so i remember a long time ago in delhi i worked with a person who was in 2 uh, crores debt now 2 crores debt is not a big thing for a lot of people but for someone who's earning 20000 rupees a month 2 crores debt is a huge thing and his his daughter actually brought him up to me saying can you save us do something for our family and uh, we did we, we the family is out of it right now but but the thing that was surprising to me is that while see the one of the thing is he got into the situation because he was in deep fear you know his body would shiver thinking about debtors so he would borrow more money to pay back the interest of the money he had borrowed not even the principal right so and then higher interest higher interest and that accumulated over 10 years and you know something very small became that that much and um i can't see you both you still here on the show Yes. Am I here? Yeah. Okay. okay so, <laughs> so, so it accumulated, and uh, what happened after that is that um, in that particular meeting, the key systemic change I did was while he was telling me his story, I noticed that his wife was um, uh, rock solid, like an iron. So I said, "You're going to solve this problem, but not you." And I pointed to the wife and said, "She is going to handle your loans." she's going to do the negotiations it was a very simple shift we did she was able to bring down you know the commitment from 2 crores to like half of that or lesser and and things started changing in their life but for me what is interesting is what happened after that i had to meet a client from a media company his father was a client of mine from the uh, indian army but he brought his son and the son was on medication the son had certain challenges he was on medication he was not the typical person right but he had different types of behaviors and you know he has his highs and downs the son walked into the room and the first thing he told me was i smell fear he, i can i can mimic him you know and he said i smell fear someone in this room was afraid and he had not even seen the person he was my next client and jessica might know like sometimes when i do intense sessions like that i unwind you know i listen to music i play i play songs i listen to some uh, thing and then play the guitar 
And then I get out of the room and then I come in and I walk in with this guy and he comes in and he says, I smell fear. So when I wrote to John about this thing and he pointed that the dog could do that, that's when I started personally experimenting and I had first validation that there are other people who could do it. Now, here's the other interesting thing, Jessica, you won't believe this, Supermanian. So <laughs> a nine of us go to Spain, okay? So John already knows that I can smell things in people. But the challenge was, how do I validate it? So I told John, John, can you partner with me? Can we run some experiments so I can validate that I'm able to do this? Now, convenient as John, he ignored that request and he forgot about it. I thought he forgot about it. So I went to Spain for one of his programs, Italy or Spain, Spain. And uh, uh, we went as a team. You know, it took some of our team members and there was this girl called Swati Priya. We went over there and uh, we were in that seminar. And during the break, John was walking out. And I was standing there doing something. John looked at me and he said, she's the girl. I said, she's the girl for what? For the <laughs> for that exercise that you asked me for. <laughs> now, John was on stage and he was delivering a seminar to all the people over there. And he could see in that brief two hours that this girl had the capability to recognize certain smells and emotions. Wow. So we did this experiment. So all of us, you know, during the break, lunch break, we went to this fancy restaurant and we said that, Swati, you're going to close your eyes. And we covered our eyes and then a waiter would come in and then we would calibrate with our eyes and, you know, with our voice, what state of mind he is in. And she, before we made our prediction, had to use the smell and make her predictions. And it was 100% accurate. Even when the wow. person never spoke, you would have someone who would walk by like that so we could see if the person was sad or happy. And uh, uh, we'll ask her, the person who passed by, what's the emotion? And she'll say an emotion that would be a 100% match. So it's definitely something <laughs> that we can train yes, to do. And uh, uh, so, for, so, so um, you know, I think um, trust as an emotion is a compounded emotion. What I mean by that is it's, a, it's both the presence of certain things and the absence of something else. For example, the feeling of safety is something that you would expect when someone trusts you and, you know, and they're in your, in your presence. And the, uh, as against the feeling of yeah, you know, danger. So I think you can measure trust uh, if you want to use the smell as, an, as a reference. You have to go to the fundamental emotions and uh, get to the composite, the composition of trust. You know, in a, in a corporate setting, let's say I'm in a meeting where there are goal setting going on and people feel certain about that goal. You know, there's an exhilaration in their body. Then, you know, there is trust. But let's say you're in a, in a marriage or you are proposing to someone, the smell of love, you know, in the air will let you know that there is trust. So in a lot of ways, trust is like an ingredient in a variety of emotions like love, certainty, and uh, assurance, safety. And also it's the lack of certain emotions. So I feel like trust, uh, when just by looking at the reference of smell, trust can be, um, I don't know if you can smell trust, but you can smell the lack of trust. <laughs> <laughs> 
Great. Jesse, do you have any questions? Yeah. Or yes, yes. Uh, in fact, uh, there are a number of questions from the audience as well. And there was one uh, question that was coming up um, where they asked, how can you in increase trust uh, uh, in organizations? Uh, and so, yeah. I don't know, uh, 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 based on what you said, uh, and yeah. you shared about the work we do on trust. So you know that uh, we follow, we are partnered with Reynas, who are pioneers in the field of trust. So they have this beautiful trust model where they look at character, communication, capabilities, and uh, I think, uh, I think, yeah, I think Jesse has just dropped off. But, uh, but yeah, I think people have questions here where they're asking how they can improve the trust in the organization. And I think there is also a question on how the unconscious pattern, how can they learn what tools? So there are two there. Okay. Would you want to take that uh, question first, uh, Subramanian? Yeah, you and, uh, yeah, sure. Jessica and on the trust and then I can follow it up with it yeah okay so so in terms of uh, talking about how we can increase trust and how what can we do to measure uh, so Ajesh Kumar you had that question and essentially what we leverage is there is a 30 years researched model where what has been an intangible invisible thing called trust, they have been able to measure that using psychometric assessments. Now, when they use the psychometric assessments, what is actually being measured is a set of questions, which actually tries to look at the behaviors that people show. And these questions then track the behaviors and measure them. And of course, because it's psychometric, it's validated statistically and all of that. So you get a report which clearly establishes what are the behaviors that are stronger, that enables and helps build trust. And on the other hand, it also highlights behaviors that are actually breaking or, or creating an issue with the trust levels. So at the end of the day, how do we measure it? It's based on the behaviors. And if you track the behaviors, you're able to uh, kind of get a measure towards that trust. Now, if you read a book on by Dennis Reyna and Michelle Reyna, I think you will get a fair amount of uh, conceptual uh, level details. And if you have any more questions, you can always get in touch with us. And Jessica's back. And, yeah, I'm uh, back. Uh, there was a technical hitch, so I had to, uh, it, I dropped over. Okay, so if you know, uh, Rajesh and you could, uh, Subramanian and you could, uh, you, would you want to take that question on trust and how to improve trust and then I can follow it up? Yeah, so that's what we were discussing, Jesse. So uh, nothing Ali. lost. But by, but Jesse, that was pretty quick to jump in despite the technical <laughs> issue. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, uh, so uh, uh, so I missed what uh, Subramanian said, but I, I guess you were talking about the Rena Trust Assessment. Measuring, yeah, yeah, yeah. Measuring, yes. So we have found, in fact, this to be a very powerful combination when you work with clients, when you do a consulting with organizations, where uh, we are able to, when we do the diagnosis of what needs to be done for this organization, you know, the predictive intelligence, where they are and where they need to be, how can we change the trajectory? When we bring in the trust assessments, it gives quite a bit of clarity on very the metrics, the data gives us a lot of clarity. And what I've seen is when we bring in the EIT aspect of it with all the unconscious patterning and all that, it kind of takes it, uh, it accelerates 
uh, it turbocharges the whole process of change, whether it's a cultural change or whether it is getting results, whether it is sales results, whether it is the kind of relationships where the trust uh, is built, uh, uh, it, it takes it to a different level. So we find that this has been a very accelerated process and a beautiful combination when we bring in the RENA trust assessments and when we bring in EIT. And this is something we, we often talk about and would like to explore more for uh, corporates. Anthony. Yeah, just to add on to that discussion, and I'll keep this short, is uh, once you have identified issues that are hitting you or impacting you from a trust perspective, um, we very much see a connection with that behavior and all the things that you do in terms of your results and your impact on the organization. So that's exactly where Jesse is talking about EIT. So when you combine trust and EIT, which, which basically looks at what is the pattern you have given a particular scenario, how do you always respond or how do you think uh, we basically then start addressing those patterns. There are tools which helps us to accelerate. And when we talk about acceleration, we are basically talking about acceleration in comparison to the existing tools, example, coaching or some of the other tools that exist. Now, when these tools that are part of the excellence installation technology gets implemented, it not only helps you accelerate, but it makes it permanent and it makes and allows you to amplify your end results. And Antonio was talking about the new trajectory and you literally set into uh, motion an entirely new trajectory with entirely new possibilities. So, uh, so, Antonio, so yeah, Jesse. Right, so uh, I think the question, uh, some of the questions were around how do you improve trust? And uh, that also brings the other topic about trustable. So, you know, the, so, um, the rule of, so, so I have an analogy that I sometimes share with our clients, you know, is there is a there is an uh, English uh, old English uh, fable of you know these two people in love, uh, they feel like they are in love with each other, and um, the lady is the daughter of a king, of, a, of an emperor, and uh, in those in that you know in that setting, it was illegal for a commoner to love a princess, and uh, and this man seems to be a commoner and. Um, they decide so he has and they find out and they you know by the law they have to kill him so in that ah. kingdom when they have to kill someone they they have and if they if they're killing an unmarried man then they have this ritual where they send that person to walk a path a narrow lane and at the end of the lane you know everybody is watching in front of him are two doors one door behind that door is a lion that they haven't fed for like 10 days and the other door is a beautiful young girl he can marry and his he's pardoned for life so depending on which door he opens you know his he would either be eaten by a lion or unless he fights it then or there's this beautiful bride uh, waiting for him and and he's put into that path now the princess a day before a day before uh, this entire event, she learns by bribing someone 
behind which door is the lion and behind which door is the princess. Now, this man is walking down the path and she cues to him on what door to open. And if you pause for a moment and the question I ask people is, what should the man do in that situation? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, it's <laughs> now, now there are different layers to it because is the lady trustable does her desire you know to be with him supersedes the desire for him to live for her wanting him to live does her jealousy doesn't stand a comparison to the love she has for him. And if the man chooses to trust her, what does it tell about him? And if he chooses not to trust her, what does it tell about him? <laughs> <laughs> And I think in that sense, trust is a very complex uh, uh, thing to do. And I tell people, don't expect to learn how to build an aeroplane because you studied basic algebra. So the problem with tips and tricks is that it's oversimplification. The, the whole idea of how do you improve trust uh, has to be preceded by, is the organization trustable? And uh, I would like to quote an example without naming the company. And this is many years ago. I visited this uh, Fortune 500 company. They invited us. And the HR in the first meeting, she said, I know everything that you do and the magic you guys do. And that's why you're here. And I said, okay, what would you like us to do? She said, but we don't want you to evolve people. <laughs> and this is an ITES company. They were call centers. She said, see, I have a perfect formula in place. If I keep my attrition between 5 to 8%, then I don't have to increase their salaries after two years. Okay. And I only have so many managers. If you take all my fishes and make them into sharks, then where is space for them in the company? So she said, design a program for us that's addictive, that you can predict will keep the employee in it, you know, like a gamification in their um, incentive model within the company trap for a couple of years so that they can choose who to let go every at at, at eight percent uh, chance you know now is it doable it's definitely doable do i want to do it i don't want to do it has the company done it i probably think they have you know gamification there are enough consultants who can do that when i say gamification i'm not talking about games about incentive models that would keep a person hooked up there so what they were literally doing is they're taking the lives of 24 years old and they want them to stay the same way till they're 28, till they're 30. And then they want to fire them when they're 30 so that they don't have to pay a particular amount. And I'm, I'm talking about a huge corporate, a huge corporation, a multi-billion dollar across the globe. And this is the HR of the company talking about the lives of tens of thousands of individuals, right? So wow. you know, why would you help the individuals trust the company over there? You know, you wouldn't. And um, so for me, the I think... Trust has to, and I think that's another thing I like about what you do, Subramanian and Jessica, is that trust has to start right at the top, you know, because because while you are building trust, and at least when you, I'm pretty sure your model already has it, but especially when you bring in EIT into the equation, you're not just improving trust, but you're also making the leaders actually trustworthy. 
that it's safe to trust these people. And I think there's enough damage and hurt in the world that has happened because of charismatic people who are not trustworthy and, you know, they have just learned how to uh, talk or get their marketing in a way that the world trusts them. We don't want that. So I think one of the things that I really like about the work you do, and especially when you combine EIT, is that there's no way you're going to bring that because you're not mind-washing people, you're not brainwashing people to trust. You're bringing about trust. You're not even working on trust. You're working on other pillars. You're working on communication, capability, confidence in the intent, in what the organization wants to achieve for the world, for their employees, and personal behaviors, things like uh, you know avoiding jealousy, confrontation, and, and going into collaborative frame. And then trust evolves as a natural process. So there is a manipulative way to build trust, and there is an enduring way to build trust. And I think the enduring way to build trust is to look at all the shortcomings and go fix it. Yeah. And improve and make your communication more effective. Very nice. Very well said, Antonov. And, and I'm reminded of the comment we generally end up making, probably not the best way to say that, but we always call trust is a double-edged sword because you, you teach people how to build trust, then the leaders have to ensure that they follow that too. Otherwise, it's going to have a boomerang effect because if one segment follows it and the other segment doesn't follow it, then, then that becomes an issue. And so we always kind of let leaders know that that decision has to be weighed in and thoughtfully made because it has a significant ramification, both plus and minus. So that was a great comment as well. Jesse, you see any questions that came up in the There list? are a number of questions, in fact. Uh, and I see also that we have run, we've exceeded our one hour. Uh, so uh, what we could probably do is uh, get Aishwarya back while, in. And then while, can... Yeah, while we have exceeded, uh, I see the that viewers are still holding on. And that's yeah. uh, that's clearly telling us that they are loving what they are listening to. But, but I agree. But I agree. I think uh, let's bring, uh, yes, Aishwarya. Are there any other questions that we missed or? Uh, well, I think there's at least a couple because I see one saying that what is the end game with EIT? And uh, because I think the person yes, is. Yeah, genetics. And, yeah. Can we flash that question, Aishwarya? What yeah. is the role of genetics and sheer luck of the draw in our unconscious patterns? Uh, what is the what role is of your end game? Sheer luck of the draw in our unconscious uh, uh, patterns. So. So, uh, Frame Sai, when you talk about luck, I think we're talking spiritual, at least for me. So, I'm going to stay out of that topic. Personally, I believe uh, it's just my personal opinion, not my professional opinion. Everything else so far has been a personal and professional opinion. But just my personal opinion is that, you know, you can make the horse ready for the battle, but the victory comes from God. And I think uh, I leave it at that. And as I said, it's my personal opinion. Um, but uh, when you look at what is your end game with EIT, uh, our end game with EID is uh, I want every child empowered to have a strong foundation in everything that the neurology is gifted to do and not just pursue what they can. Because today when someone says, I want to become a doctor, I want to become an engineer, it's because they're already good at, say, Max or, you know, at, a, at, uh, or at people or when they say, I want to, you know, become a poet or, an, or do MA in English because they can already speak English particularly well. 
today the trend has been when you're good at something, you pursue that. But unfortunately, when you're good at something and you build a career on it, you're not necessarily doing the stuff that you enjoyed what you were good at. Like if you pursue, if you're good at English and you pursue MA literature, your career is not going to be, you know, studying uh, English uh, for the next 20 years. So uh, there is a disconnect in the education system when you like something versus um, when you actually get into the job and you grow over there. So and also in the in the in the current world, if you look at it, people are changing their career every ten years, every fifteen years. You know, someone starts as an engineer, then becomes a management guru. You know, then it's a, it's a, or someone starts as a doctor, owns a hospital. Sometimes people become an actor, and then you know they're business tycoons, or uh, you know, or someone starts in a in a lab, and then uh, is uh, is suddenly now doing tax. I mean, I don't see what the connection is, but people jump. Uh, in some cases, uh, people jump careers, and that's because you think you're like you like something, and then you do it, and then after five years, you find this is not what I want to do. You want to do something else. So I think, as parents, what we you could do for what the world can do is give children a strong foundation, and it, it ties back into systemic thinking as well. Because if you're good at arts, if you're good at you know music in body movements in actual calibration like you know not a yoga guru but physical awareness and then and then logical thinking max and all those kind of stuff then you have a strong foundation my my grandfather personally worked with an actress and she's a very popular actress in south india and uh, she, he tells me about her story and it's very heartening very heartening i mean the media already knows about it they published stories about her but the stories he tells me is much more very heartening you know very disheartening and and she was the most top actress at that time but she didn't know how to manage her finance i mean she didn't know accounts she couldn't do simple basic max she died of health failure coming from poverty and this is like a top artist in the country right and so that's the challenge of you know being super specialist and ignoring everything else and i think our neurology is in a state of plasticity till always but as children our neurology is in a super heightened state of plasticity there is enough bandwidth for you to have a strong foundation across everything that you need in life and then you know you can jump careers you can combine things today the innovations you are in such a world you combine two things and a new thing that doesn't exist before comes out it's like magic literally like magic like you know how you see cartoons where you know there's this spell this spell and then combine and then something comes out people combine biotech with like ai and then something comes out and it's like an unbelievable time we live in the challenge however is that children are naturally gifted at something not because they were born that way, because they accidentally bumped into a good teacher or somebody taught them in a particular way. And then there are other things that they find very difficult. Our vision with EIT Endgame, right? We, we want to do many things, but this would be satisfying for us is that every student in every school has access to do and learn what they love, not necessarily what they can. I know a person who couldn't remember names. She wanted to be a doctor. She didn't become a doctor because she can't remember certain things. Why should she limit her career based on her ability to remember certain names? EID can fix that in minutes. So 
I would like to see a world where every child is empowered to have a strong foundation and learn the things that they love, not just the things that they're currently able uh, able to learn. And uh, in some ways, I see a more trusting world in that sense because when you create children like that, then people are going to do what they love to do and they're going to be outliers and they're going to create. And instead of taking away a slice of the pie from each person, creative people create pie for everybody else. 20 years ago, you didn't have Google. You didn't have Facebook. And now you have so many things and it's created so many millions of people feed on, you know, saying I'm an SEO expert. I'm a, I mean, you create jobs and that's what creative people do. And when you have children who are empowered to do what they love to do, they're going to combine things. They're going to take multiple strengths and they're going to combine things. So you're multiplying the pie. You're not taking a piece of the pie anymore. You're multiplying the pie. I see a more trustable world and that would mean a lot more abundance, happiness and satisfaction. In the Beautiful, Antonon. Beautiful. In fact, when you said a trust, more trustable world and, and you gave examples of people having to go as an outlier and pursuing uh, unusual career paths, as an example, I was thinking about how the world could then become inclusive and make them feel included because it's not required that your daughter or your son needs to always follow the standard path as we call quote unquote um, mm -hmm. you we talk about inclusion and diversity in corporates but we seldom apply that in the in our own homes or in our own societies when it comes to that for some reason or the other diversity and inclusion stays in the corporate but never comes down to the society or personal life and it's interesting how the same leader can be different in two sides of the world with that uh, as well so so thank you for that that was that was beautiful uh Aishwarya, do we have are we seeing more questions or are they comments just um there are there's been a lot of appreciation i think uh, everyone's enjoyed the session a lot um i have janice saying it's a super awesome session um you know and even there's a comment it's one of the most riveting uh, trust talk so far yeah. uh, anupriya said that uh, for her she she's thoroughly enjoyed the session especially this one um and yeah, I think um, a lot of people who are tuning in uh, have, you know, absolutely enjoyed the session. Um, we do have uh, some more questions, but I think we're running out of time. So what we'll do is uh, we will touch base with you guys and answer your questions in the comments. And um, <laughs> Preeti says we don't want to leave. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we will be continuing these uh, trust talks going forward. So please uh, tune in to them. And thank you, Antono, Subramanian, Jessica, for that insightful session on the neuroscience of trust and why it matters. And for all of you guys who have attended and... Just, just a minute. I just want to say again, specifically uh, on behalf of all of us, Antono, really really appreciate uh you coming on to the trust talks and sharing your thoughts and and just like the audience are i'm equally in that space of uh being awed being inspired being um, gained significantly out of this so thank you so much
So, in fact, there is a request, Antno, for Trust Talks Part 2 with Antino Sola John. And, you know, so that's something we would want to uh, sometime down the line, Antno, because there's so much of insights that come out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sure, sure, Jessica. And uh, thank you. It's been wonderful. Um, I knew today was going to be an adventure. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. (laughs) And... uh, um, so, so good to see all three of you again together working uh, to make this happen. And it's, it's, been, it's been really lovely being on the show. And thanks to everyone in the audience. Uh, so much love. And um, thank you so much. It's been really wonderful being on the show. Thank you, everyone. I show you all yours. Thank you. Thank you, Antino. Thank you, uh, Subramanian and Jessica for that insightful session. Um, I just want to give a big shout out to, you know, all of the participants, uh, audience members who joined us across uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, um, you know, and YouTube. I mean, you guys have been awesome. I I've loved this energy. I've loved the questions that have come in. And, you know, what incredible insight today and i'm so glad you know that uh, as we proceed with these uh, episodes of trust stalls we're building and empowering a more trusting community so don't forget to tag us on instagram linkedin and facebook or youtube and let us know what are your thoughts on today's show and what resonated with you if you see value in what you saw today tag your friends because who knows maybe you might inspire them to building trust Till then, thank you for tuning in to Trust Talks, brought to you by Renergetics Consulting, where we transform people, transform business. Good night, folks.